Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur Risk Givers Podcast. The podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who are willing not only to take risks for themselves and their businesses, but who are also willing to risk helping others. Now sit back and listen to entrepreneurs just like you who are giving back to their communities in big ways. Here's your host, Mike Wiest. Hey, this is Mike Wiest, and today on our episode, we have with us Jude Higgins. How are you doing, Jude? I'm doing well, thank you. Really glad that you're on with us this morning. I'm just really interested in our audience hearing about what you do, and um, I think what you do is so valuable. So really, I'm looking forward to jumping into that. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself so that our audience knows kind of who you are and who it is that's talking to them this morning. Okay. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I am a death doula, an end-of-life doula, and I help people and their families as they face end-of-life transition. I am also a graduate student at the U. I'm working on a doctorate in education and until recently was a faculty member at the community college. So I'm also an anthropologist. Okay. So background in anthropology. All right. Very good. Anything else about you that we should know that's important before we jump into this important work that you do? I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. Very good. So uh, let's talk about what this is that you're doing. Now, a lot of times on the show we have, so you're an entrepreneur and that's who we have generally on the show. And a lot of times we have people who are passionate about nonprofits or maybe they own a nonprofit. And your, your situation is just a little bit different. You own your own business. It's not a nonprofit. Uh, but I'm excited to have you on because you are in what I would definitely consider a helping industry. And I'm very interested in talking to people about that. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about your business and that helping field that you're a part of. Okay, fabulous. Yeah, the business name is Held. And that stands for help from an end of life doula. And I do work in death, dying and grief. So with the business, um, I have people contact me who are near the end stages of life and need help or people who are thinking about um, dying and want to work on other projects You don't have to have a terminal diagnosis. You don't have to be on hospice. You don't have to be in palliative care to start working with an end-of-life doula. So I work with people in all stages of life, actually. And I also train people to become end-of-life doulas. And I've created a training program based on the pedagogical practices and curriculum design that I did for so long at the community college and other universities. And I pull in some of the the aspects of my doctoral work in education, life history interviews, things like that. And I've created a training course so that I can train other end of life doulas. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And uh, it's such a, such a, in my mind, it's such a difficult thing to sort of jump into. I'm very curious about what led you into this kind of work, um, both both sides. And I hear you saying there's like kind of two sides to this. There is the you helping individuals and family members as loved ones are nearing the end of their lives, but then you are also training other people to do what you do. So it's two really distinct parts of your business and what you do. Right. Uh, but I guess I'm mo- I'm interested in first just to hear like what led you to that place in, in your life and in your business. Okay. 
Yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting. I feel like everything came together in terms of just this beautiful serendipitous alignment of everything that I'd ever done work-wise to lead me to this. So I do feel like this is really my life's work, my life's calling, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, because it combines all of my previous training. So just in terms of being around death and working in that area, um, my mom was sick my entire life. So she was always on death's door. She died once actually and came back and, and she was always very sick. So there was that aspect in my life with her and nurturing and caring for her. And then I went into fields like in anthropology I specialized in an archaeological field where I was identifying animal bones from archaeological sites. So constantly working with animal bones, also creating skeletal collections for the museum for comparative collection. So literally gathering rock roadkill and skeletonizing it. So always around death in, in all of my all of my fields of study and then teaching and curriculum design. And then at some point, a few years ago, my father asked to come live with me when he was dying. And so I took care of him for the last two years of his life. And I knew he had all of everything in order. He had do not resuscitate order. He didn't want any intervention whatsoever. And I completely respected that. But what I didn't realize is that at some point I would have to make sure that his wishes were enacted. And so there's a time when you don't call the ambulance. There's a time when you don't have his intervenous like fluids given to him because that's not what he wanted. So that was really, really difficult for me to step into that place of facing death. Yeah. Um, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. I was going to school full-time, working full-time, taking care of him, and I was his sole caregiver. So it was really, really hard, and I relied on hospice. Yeah. Um, and my hospice team was great until they finally said, you know, you need respite. So we're going to move him, and you need to be able to sleep for five days. He died in the care facility but that team was so instrumental to me that I started to volunteer for hospice after he died. And I met my volunteer coordinator who was also a death doula. And it was a fairly new thing, I think, kind of formalized training. I mean, people have, Ram Dass has been doing it forever. Joan Halifax has been doing it forever. So there are people that have worked in this realm, but national training just kind of became a thing in 2017. And so I went and I trained and being an educator (laughs) and a curriculum designer. You had that background anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, I looked at the course and I realized where there were holes for me. And so in doing that, I was also in the process of helping a very, very good friend of mine die. And I was with her probably every day for six months. And Somebody in town from a hospice contacted me about teaching a course for them. And just it, it unfolded 
in such a way that the woman I was helping had been a mentor to me. And she just said, create your own course. Like, this is what you do. You design courses and you teach. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I've done. You know, I, my first career was in dance. My second career was a faculty member. So I've always taught. And she kind of instigated that. Her son instigated that with me. They, they supported me and designing my own course. And um, I talked to her about it as she was dying and just created my own training course. So that's how it's all, it all came about. Yeah, that is um, such a such a fluid, obvious answer. I mean, I a lot of times we're like, I'm not sure, you know. I mean, I I saw this course or I saw this thing, and it just inspired me. And what you're, I hear you saying is, it's like basically everything in your life. I mean, all these experiences that you had, even from a, a young age, uh, with close p- people that were close to you experiencing um, death and dying in this way, and seeing the benefit of of others, and I, I really enjoy. Um, that you you mentioned the volunteerism since that's so much about what the show this show is about. Just one of the reasons to volunteer is you you get to see and learn about your passions. And and if you hadn't done the volunteering back then, you wouldn't have the business you do now. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like I was it was just alignment. The woman that was my volunteer coordinator has is a dear friend to me to this day. And, um, we just clicked. She's the one that told me about the training. Everything fell into place so seamlessly and with no effort. It's just a natural progression. So it feels like I can't, it's something I can't really fight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, you mentioned it, you had worded it as saying it almost felt like a calling. And and now I hear you saying the same thing by saying, I I can't even fight it. You know, it's sort of, it's just what I do and uh, not not just helping people in these transitions, but also your experience with teaching and training. It just makes sense that you saw some holes as a teacher that you could sort of, I don't know if I should use the word improve upon, but, Mm -hmm. but you could sort of fill in those gaps um, in future trainings for people. What a wonderful service. That is, and again, helper field, a lot of times we talk about the helper fields, we think, I don't know, we think about kinds of things, I don't know if we think of end of life doulas, but man, I, and I don't talk a lot about my background on the show here, but I, I spent 20 years in full-time ministry before, before I started this podcast and marketing and other things that I do. And, and I can tell the audience <laughs> uh, who may have no experience with this that, uh, at least from my perspective, um, helping people at the end of their lives transitioning is, was for me, the absolute most difficult part of, and I hate to say my job, but the, what I was doing at that time, that was, that was the absolute hardest part of that. So anyway, I give you a lot of credit for accepting your calling. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges now, because so we heard you talk about how you got into this and your experience with your dad. And it, I'm correct in saying you were not doing this as a business yet at that time, but that oh. what really that and seeing how the hospice workers helped you and your father pushed yeah. you over into doing this, right? No, I was running from it actually. Like I was completely, I, I did not want to step into that. I wish I would have had the training before my dad came to live with me because I, I was operating from a place of fear and a place of, I don't even know, I was overwhelmed. But had I had this training, I think I would have been better able to 
just had conversations with him that were helpful. Um, and I didn't realize how to do that. So we didn't really have those conversations. Everything that was done with my father was, it was, I felt it energetically and I responded if in terms of, you know, how he wanted his vigil to be when he was dying. I never got to ask him questions about that, but I just responded in ways that I thought he would like. So I wish I would have had the training prior to working with him. It would have made things a lot easier in a sense. Now I completely forgot your question. So. <laughs> well, I think you're answering it. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I was just talking about challenges. What are some of the challenges that oh, you've had? Now, but but the, before before you jump into that, I mean, yeah. I, I loved what you're what you were sharing with us about your experience with your dad because I think that's where a lot of people are going to relate because most people that are listening aren't don't do what you do, but all of us, at, if we haven't yet, will at some time have people in our right. lives, loved ones that are in this phase of life, end of life. And, um, and so, but what I hear you saying is you, you honored his wishes, but you wish you had more information. So you knew how you could sort of make that experience more rich, uh, more valuable. Yeah. At the time. This is one of the things that makes this so challenging. This kind of work so challenging is that you can't go back and, and change things. You, you have sort right. of one shot at this. And so being informed ahead of time is really crucial. Yeah, no, I think, I think it is. It's very, very crucial. And as an end of life doula, we're there for the client. We don't have patients because we don't give medicine. So we never touch any, any medicine. So we talk about our clients, not our patients, but being there for the client, the end of life doula is the advocate for the client, whatever the client wants. And the problems come when the family's needs and wants are separate from the clients. Okay. And now we're answering the question about challenges. So these are some Absolutely. of the challenges. It's when and, those wishes aren't lined up then. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's really, really difficult because when someone has a terminal diagnosis or when they ha they're on palliative care and they know that this disease will eventually kill them, they're faced with that information from their doctor and they're trying to process that and deal with it. And in our culture, we are incredibly death phobic and grief illiterate. Yeah. And we don't, we don't deal well. If we ask someone how they're doing and they don't say fine, <laughs> it rocks our world, right? We don't want to hear that. So we have a hard time sitting with grief of others and holding that for others. We have a hard time talking about death, but if someone has a, a terminal diagnosis, that's what they want to talk about because they're dying. And so having an advocate that can at least talk frankly with them, not be afraid to use the word death, not be afraid to talk about what they need to do to prepare Oftentimes, family members either do one of two things. They either try to hold the person here or they try to push them away okay. um, because they want a, a closure to that. It's hard to be in the space of in-between. It's hard to sit in that space where someone's not fully alive, they're not fully dead. 
and the family is dealing with all of their feelings. So we try to meet people where they are. Hugely emotional. This dealing, is yeah. Extremely and, emotional. And it's a, sometimes we're just in the middle of a tornado and we're just the solid person that somebody can put their, you know, hang on to. And we don't try to fix things. We don't tell people things will get better. We, we are very honest in terms of what's happening, but some people don't like to hear that. So the difficulty is when they're, when people are in all kinds of different places around the concept of death. Yeah. I'm waiting for a miracle. I'm refusing to believe this person is going to die. I don't even want to use the word death because there there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff around um, the words we use. Yeah. And at at the same time, your client is not in that place. They are trying to prepare for. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you said a phrase a second ago. Um, You said we're, we, uh, I think you're kind of referencing the U S but maybe more than that, but you're saying we're uncomfortable with, with grief and, and those big emotions and those things. I, I, I see that. I agree with that. Um, I agree with that with me, even having that experience, but you said we're uncomfortable with sitting with grief. And I love that phrase. And I'm guessing that that phrase is packed with a lot of meaning for you. Um, so why don't you talk to us just for a second about what, what that is, because I think there might be some like um, helpful advice for us in that. What does it mean to sit with Right. Um, and I think that's one of the most powerful things that, that I think I bring to this, this training is, is I was trained in to facilitate a work that was actually started by Parker Palmer with, for teachers. And it's a particular way of being with individuals. And the idea is every person has their own inner sense of discernment. And I'm not here to advise you. I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to set you straight. I'm here to listen to you in a sacred way that honors your inner sense of discernment. And I will only ask you open-ended questions. So oftentimes when somebody comes to us with grief, a friend, a colleague, someone who's experienced something painful, and they tell us the story, we tend to offer advice on how to fix it. (laughs) As opposed to holding it and sitting with their grief and just holding space for them to feel their pain. And most people who are called to this are in a helping profession. So we do want to fix, but yeah, most of my training is how to not fix. Yeah. So that's so key. We, if, if you're listening to this episode, you're like, I want to be better at this. I want to be able to help people in these final stages of lives or friends who are dealing with these kinds of things, even friends of friends who are struggling with relatives who are passing those kinds of things. We do want to fix. I'm such a fixer, but helping means sitting, sitting and listening and, and holding on to these things and, and not not pushing our own ideas or what you're saying. that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really counterintuitive in terms of, because we think that that's how we do fix is to offer advice or 
you know, like I said, set someone straight or, you know, oh, have you thought about, and the training for an end of life doula is anything but that just asking open-ended questions, questions that you don't even know the answer to. And again, it gets, we're not used to communicating that way. I would work, I worked at the college with people who facilitate this type of retreat and workshop and, and way around this communication because it can help in all areas, not just end of life. But I'd come out of a classroom after teaching and I would have had maybe an issue and I would go to my colleague and ask her about it. And then she would turn it back on me and ask me open-ended questions, right? Honoring my sense of inner discernment and my knowledge and myself. And I would sometimes say to her, look, don't just fix it. Just tell me what you did to fit, like fix this for me. So we're used to communicating in ways that we expect other people to offer advice and to fix and to help in that way. But the most empowering thing, especially empowering around death, is making your own decisions. And that's, that's what people need when they're on palliative care, when they have a terminal diagnosis, is to feel a sense of control around their own death and to be empowered. Okay. Well, me- uh, but again, having the family agree and on the same page is not always the case. Yeah. And in such a, a highly emotional situation, people are, people are not always at their best. I'm very frequently right. not at their best. And, and so I imagine helping, helping people sort of get along and understand how to help in those situations is another part of the job, difficult, challenging part of the job. Let me take the conversation just a slightly different direction because I'm, I'm curious as a helper like you are, how, how and I don't, I don't think I, I don't want this question to take you too far off guard because this is about you more, but uh, how uh, do you sort of, this isn't, I don't think this is the best way to say this, but how do you sort of guard your own emotional well-being? Guard is not really the word. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah. How do you practice self-care? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How do you take care of yourself? Yeah. It's a hard, part of it, again, I think is, and lots of people, I'm just reading a, a, fabulous book by Joan Halifax, but she talks about, um, empathetic burnout and, and that type of, um, those types of problems that come from people in the helping profession and people who feel a lot of empathy. But part of the key is, well, there are a couple of things. The biggest part is not trying to fix. The minute we recognize that that person has their own inner sense of discernment, and we just need to ask particular types of questions, it relieves a burden of trying to fix and help and solve. And right. So that kind of, that energy dissipates and you don't burn out as quickly. So maybe you're not taking the blame of this. Like this is not in any way your fault that this is happening. Absolutely. And there's nothing like we don't pretend that we can fix things we're talking someone's terminal. Mm-hmm. So, so we work with that reality. But the other thing is in, in just in general for myself, when I work with a client, I don't drink alcohol. I don't, I don't smoke as it is, but I have to meditate a couple times a day. 
I don't eat sugar. I, so my diet changes. And for me, that's self-care. But I have to, this, this job also uses a lot of intuition in terms of navigating certain situations. And I have to be really clear with my intuition, which is why the meditation, the no alcohol, the no sugar, like if I have sugar surging through my body, I don't know. I don't, is that my intuition or am I, why am I anxious? And so I, I have to be really, really clean in terms of what I eat and, and my meditative practices. That's so interesting to me. Um, again, I sort of alluded to the fact that I, I have a similar background or I have a, well, I have not the same background, I have a ministry background, but I help people in these stages. And, uh, and I'm asking, as I'm asking you that question, I have no idea how you're going to respond. Like, how do you take care of your, your emotional state? Um, but I, I went through the exact same process uh, with caffeine specifically. I, I know, I recognize that when I went into a, a sensitive emotional meeting and I had, and I had had caffeine, it affected me and I was not as aware as I needed to be of the actual emotional state of the room. And so I have to not drink caffeine in those situations. You're saying sugar. Wow. And it's really interesting what we even read me like, even, yes. even read, like it's amazing how, you know, and that tells me something about how I should be eating every single day. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I love caffeine, but yeah, yeah. It, it's, it becomes, it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do tend to take on, and there have been all kinds of studies on like brain gray matter of what this looks like, but I tend to be an extreme empath in certain areas and, and I can, I can really pick up what people are feeling a lot. So I have to be really careful to make sure, you know, what's mine and what's not mine. And, yeah. and I just have to stay really clean. So, so being aware, and I think that's another really good, I don't want to just sort of gloss over that statement because I think that's another really important point is being aware of what's mine and what's not like, this is my emotion here, but, but that was their emotion that I was feeling very deeply. And so that takes a lot of emotional maturity. I mean, to be able to to say like, okay, this is my emotion in this place and this is just what I'm feeling from them. And then another thing, you know, as far as talking about food and all that, I, I think what you're saying is that, and for anybody that's listening, this is really key. I think what you're throwing out is really important information because a lot of times if we're feeling overly emotional, we might tend to go to those things. You know, we might tend to go to alcohol or caffeine or sugar. Yep as a relief, but that is not helping us emotionally to protect ourselves in these situations. That, that is exactly. And we talk about that in training. I talk about that a lot in training. Um, but that is, that's our first place where we go because it comforts us. It feels good. It right. All of that. And that's probably the last thing that, that we need. I think intuition is, I have a background in science. I'm a science person. And I think intuition is something that has been, it's in our evolutionary history. We are, we are programmed to have intuition. I don't think it's something that's wooey. I don't think it's something that's, I think it's very solid in terms of our evolutionary programming and intuition can be enhanced 
simply by eating the right foods and meditating twice a day. And like all of that can enhance your intuition because you become really clear and you can separate. Yeah. And that's exactly why, and this is a little off topic, but that is exactly why once a month we have a retreat week episode because every, every other week of the month we're doing interviews and doing challenges and encouraging people to go out and help others take risks is what we say, take risks to help other people. But when you do that every week and you do it maybe even every day, and especially when you do something as challenging as, as what you're involved in, you've got to step back and make sure you're taking care of yourself. And that means meditation. A lot of times in those episodes, we do meditation things. And so that's exactly why we do that. It's just self-care, take care of our emotional state and all, all those things you're saying. Well, we have time only probably for a couple more questions, maybe two more questions. And so uh, a couple of things I'd really like to hear from you. One is for anyone that's listening now, there might be different, different stages of people. There might be someone that's listening and say, I would love to do this as sort of a career, as a helping career, what are my best first steps? I would love for you to answer that a little bit. Uh, what are my next steps? But then also maybe just a word to the person who has a friend or a loved one who is passing, how can they be, what's some just really quick advice you give to somebody in, in helping a loved Absolutely. one? Absolutely. Whichever one of those you want to answer first. Yeah. Um, with next steps for someone who's intrigued or, or interested you might want to volunteer for hospice and you might want to check out the volunteer opportunities first to see if this is something that you think you would like. There are a number of very good training opportunities out there. And so I, if I was doing this, looking for training, I would explore all the different trainings and choose one that resonated with me. So I, I don't begin to think that mine is the best. I, I think it is for me and for people who are called to it. But so my website, you, it's under held help from an end of life doula. And the URL is mydeathdoula.com. And it explains my training on there. But like I said, I would explore all We'll, we'll, um, put that, we'll put that link on the on the website and um, on the social media posts as well. I think one reason people might be interested in looking at your course is because they're hearing from you. They're hearing a little bit about your background. And so it would make sense for them to, to kind right. of see you out for that, but at least check um, it out. And yeah, I would look at that. There's no national certification. So okay. it's kind of like a birth doula. You can go through training and then you can set up your own business. The training is typically three days is, is what the average training will consist of. And then there are additional courses that you can take after that three day training, but you get 24 hours and then you can go out and, and start working if you want. So that's, those are, there are a number of ways that people can, can get involved in that way. And what I would say for people who are working with, with families, I am working privately with some people who are moving through that with their family now. So I'm kind of helping and coaching them in terms of how to coach their family members. But you can just start by just talking to someone about their life, basically. Just listening and being, being 100% present and really interested in the answers that they're giving you. You might want to record it, 
but when people are at the end of life, they like to talk about their life and they like to recognize most, what most people are afraid of in terms of death is not the pain. It's their fear of being forgotten. And so if we can talk about their life history, write that down, pass that on to children, grandchildren, think of a legacy project, you know, is it, is it taking all their clothes and making a quilt or making little teddy bears out of their clothes to give to the grandkids or some sort of legacy that allows them to continue living is, is something that most people want. So you could start working on that with your family right now, right? Anyone can, can start building their legacy project. Yeah. Um, and you had mentioned that at the beginning, you, you're not just dealing with people who are at the very end of their life, but at different phases. And so this is right. kind of starting to come out a little bit about how you would do that and help and legacy project. I would have never thought about that. That's fantastic uh, advice. I can definitely see the value in that. Yeah. Yeah. And people can start doing that right now. So one last question for you. And I don't know if you have, do you have a, a story again, you don't have to give a name or anything too personal, but uh, do you have just a word of encouragement of something that you've seen that has been encouraging through this process of very, again, emotionally challenging process that you go through all the time? Uh, do you have an encouraging story for us that you'd like to end with? You know, I think that people tend to think of death as something that's very heavy and difficult and hard, and but it can also be so light. Um, vibrationally light and beautiful and happy and funny. I have lots of just funny stories about how people approach death and, and ways that are, that are just, just funny. And the family will laugh about certain incidents and it, it keeps things light. So I think the humor that is woven through every individual's death, finding those nuggets of humor to hang on to and to remember lightens the mood a little. And I think that's also very important. I don't think it's, it's bad to laugh and have that lightness um, present when, when there's something as serious as death happening. So I have lots and lots of stories of just funny light moments that are, that are beautiful and that the family cherishes. Yeah. So we don't have to make it hard, harder than it needs to be. We can take those light moments, that humor and, and we should, we should embrace that is what I hear you saying there. Yeah. And the other thing that people can do, I, I just, I, feel like I want to say this part too. One of my clients had cancer and she told me that once she got her diagnosis, she felt like people didn't want to touch her. Mm. And, and I think it's important that we still maintain that touch and, and feelings of touch and not being afraid to touch someone who has a terminal diagnosis. As long as we ask first, if it's okay because sometimes they're in a lot of pain, but not to recoil from people because they have a disease. And that, that was one of the hardest things for her because she experienced that from her close friends and, 
And I think people just become afraid of, can I do this? Is this okay? I don't want to hurt you. But if we're just open about that and communicate with the individual who has a disease, we can still hold them and we can still give them comfort. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah. Fin- fantastic advice for us. Really crucial information. I, I know that people that are listening today are, have been blessed by this. They've taken some nugget of what you're saying okay. and will we'll, uh, use that and, and incorporate that in their lives in some way. I'm sure I will. Jude, thank you so much for being on the show today for us. I just want to say I appreciate what you're doing in in your helping field there and helping others even who are learning to help others. Uh, What a a great thing you're doing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and join the conversation on social media at Risky Givers. Also, check out our website, riskygivers.com. This has been the Entrepreneur Risk Givers Podcast with your host, Mike Wiest. Hope to see you next time.